A serial killer is a person who murders three or more people over a period of more than 30 days, with a cool-off period between each murder, and whose motivation for killing is largely based on psychological gratification. Often a sexual element is involved with the killings. The murders may have been attempted or completed in a similar fashion, and the victims may have had something in common. You have entered underground of the Macau. And you never And welcome to episode 3 of Underground and the Car podcast. And as you know, I'm your host, Aaron. This week, and over the next several weeks, I've got something special for my listeners. For years and years and years, I've had a fascination and basically a decent and very productive fascination with serial killers. Anything that's come on TV about um, any particular killer, I've watched documentaries, films, um, ser- just regular searching the internet for about their history and stuff. I've always had a fascination, so I thought to myself, what can I do? After last week's my, well after last week's episode of me basically moaning about two films I picked, I thought I'd try a subject that. I truly, truly know I will be passionate about and love. And I thought to myself, I was watching Dexter at the time, season one, awesome show. And I thought to myself, this program is so good. It just it reminded me of why I love serial killers. I don't love what they do, but I have a love for their who they are, for who they are, and their personalities and what and what created them why did they do what they did it's baffled me for years I used to sit in the library in college instead of going out chatting to friends sometimes sit in the library and just look on crime websites crime libraries and stuff like that just um, read up backstories and serial killers and what they've done and for years and years and years I've done this and I know a fair amount about serial killers there's probably people out there know far more than what me for far more than what I do but I thought, let's tackle this subject that I really know a lot about. And I thought, I couldn't do it justice in one episode, so I decided to do in three parts. So episode three is basically called episode three, Serial Killers Part 1. Episode four will be episodes four, Serial Killers Part 2, and you get a just Serial Killers Part 3 in episode five. But the thing is, after this episode, next week I'm taking a week off. Because like I said, I don't know if I told you last week, viewers, listeners, sorry, that I'm going to do three weeks on and then a week off to like do more research and basically give a break. I don't want to, I don't want to burn myself out doing this every week. Because if you're a single podcaster, podcaster, you know how much hard work goes into each episode, especially if you do it by yourself. And I don't want to burn myself out. So if you love this episode, if you're going to love this episode, then I'm afraid to say you're going to have to wait two weeks before part two is on your iTunes list or whether how I'll, whether how I'll, uh, whether you have, uh, shut up Aaron you fucking freak, yeah, there the swearing comes already, it didn't take long to come in and swear, another three minutes into the show, yeah, whether on how you download this episode, whether you go through my blog, or whether you do it for your iTunes, you will have to wait two weeks for part two, so I was thinking, <coughs> pardon me, what killers can I do? I'm not going to review all of them, but 
there's I'll tell you the two that I'm gonna do for this episode. The first two are two killers that really have fascinated me so much. I've watched films about these guys, I've watched documentaries, I've basically done a shit load of research. And the first one is Theodore Bundy. Um as you may not know about him, you may know up you probably know about him by now. If you don't then this show will enlighten you. And the other is the infamous Zodiac Killer. Uh, I'll talk about a bit more in discussion about that 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 segment of the show. It's going to be very detailed, the Zodiac segment. So, yeah. So this is the first part of my serial killer trilogy, basically. And part two, obviously, like I said, is not going to be for another two weeks because next week I'm having a break. I'm going to chill out. Plus, I've got chill out my family. Plus, I've got shitloads of work to do. So it's a good thing I'm going to take a breather from this. So basically, let's get in with, on with the show. So first of all, I was flicking through the internet. I want to give you guys a brief profile of who Ted Bundy is. So I found um, some notes off the internet, and I want to just read them out to you about who Ted Bundy is. If you don't know, you know who he is. Okay, bear with me, guys. Ted Bundy. He was attractive, smart, and had a future in politics. He was also one of the most prolific serial killers in U.S. history. Ted Bundy screamed his innocence until his death in the electric chair became imminent. Then he tried to use his victims one more time to keep himself alive. His plan failed and the world got a glimpse of the true evil inside him. Theodore Robert Cowell Ted Bundy was born Theodore Robert Cowell to Louise Cowell on November 24, 1946 at the Elizabeth Lund Home for Unwed Mothers in Burlington, Vermont. After eight weeks at home, Louise returned to her parents' house in Philadelphia to raise her son. For the first several years of his life, Ted thought his grandparents were his parents and his mother was his sister. In 1951, Louise and Ted moved to, to Tacoma, Washington, and Louise married Johnny Bundy, a military cook. Right, Bundy's teenage years. Despite his potential circumstances and meaner surroundings, Bundy was well behaved and grew into an attractive teen who was generally liked and who performed well in school. After high school, he entered the University Pugent Sound and continued to do well academically, but felt uncomfortable around his fellow peers who were predominantly wealthy. In his sophomore year, Bundy transferred to the University of Washington and escaped the uncomfortable feelings of his financial inadequacy. <coughs> Socially challenged. Throughout his years at high school, Bunny suffered from an acute shyness that resulted in his appearing socially awkward. Mm, sounds a bit familiar to familiar as me. Philip, eh, sounded familiar as I did back then. Anyhow, this affliction followed him to college, and although Bundy had friends, he never blended comfortably into doing much of the social activities others were doing. He rarely dated and kept to himself, but in 1967, Bundy met the woman of his dreams. She was pretty wealthy and sophisticated. They both shared a skill and passion for skiing and spent weekends on the ski slopes. Bundy's first love. Ted fell in love with his new girlfriend and tried to impress her to the point of grossly exaggerating his own accomplishments. He tried to gain her approval with a summer scholarship to Stanford that he won, although his time there was less than impressive. By 1968, she decided Bundy lacked any real future and was not husband material. She ended their relationship and broke Bundy's heart, and his obsession towards her haunted him for years. Depression and whispered rumours. Bundy suffered extreme depression over the breakup and dropped out of school. 
It was during this time that he learned the truth that his sister was his mother, and his grandparents, his parents were his grandparents. Bundy was also getting a whispered reputation by those close to him for being a, a petty thief. It was during this, this phase of his life that his shyness was replaced with false bravado, and returned to college, excelled in his major, and earned a bachelor's degree in psychology. Elizabeth. Bundy became involved with another woman, Elizabeth Kendall, the pseudonym used, to, used when she wrote The Phantom Prince of My Life with Ted Bundy, who was a divorce with a young, divorcee with a young daughter. She felt deeply in love with Bundy, and despite her suspicions that Bundy was seeing other women heat, her devotion toward him continued. Bundy was not receptive to the idea of marriage, but allowed the relationship to continue even after reuniting with his first love, who was attracted to the new confidence Ted Bundy. A new Ted Bundy. Bundy worked on the re-election re campaign of Washington's Republic Governor Dan Evans. Evans was elected and he appointed Bundy to the Seattle Crime Prevention Advisory Committee. Bundy's political future seemed secure when in 1973 he became an assistant to Ross Davis, chairman of the Washington State Republican Party. It was a good time in Bundy's life. He had a girlfriend, his old girlfriend was once again in love with him, and his footing in the political arena was strong. And that man named Ted. In 1974, young women began vanishing from college campuses around Washington and Oregon. Linda Ann Healy, a 21-year-old radio announcer, was among those who were missing. In July 1974, two women were approached at the Seattle State Park by a attractive man who introduced himself as Ted. He asked them to help him with a sailboat, by, but they refused. Later that day, two other women were seen going off with him and were never seen again. Bundy moves to Utah. In the fall of 1974, Bundy enrolled in law school at the University of Utah, and he moved to Salt Lake City. In November, Carol DeRanche was attacked at a Utah mall by a man dressed as a police officer. She managed to escape. She provided police with a description of the man, the Volkswagen he was driving, and a sample of his blood that got on her jacket during their struggle. Within a few hours after DeRanche was attacked, 17-year-old Debbie Kent disappears. A graveyard of bones. Around this time, hikers discovered a graveyard of bones in Washington Forest, later identified as belonging to the missing women from both Washington and Utah. Investigators from both states commuted to get, communicated together and came up with a profile and composite scripts of the man named Ted, who approached women for help, sometimes appearing helpless with a cast on his arm or crutches. They also had a description of his tan, VW, and his blood type, which was type O which was typo. Profiles. Authorities compared similarities of women disappearing. They were all white, thin and single and had long hair that was parted in the middle. They also vanished during the evening hours. The bodies of the dead women found in Utah had all been hit with a blunt object to the head, raped and sodomized. Authorities knew they were dealing with a serial killer who had a no, capability to travel from state to state. Murders in Colorado. On January 12, 1975, Karen Campbell vanished from a ski resort in Colorado while on vacation with her fiancé and his two children. A month later, Karen's nude body was found lying a short distance from the road. Examination of her remains deter determined, determined she had received violent blows to her skull. Over the next few months, five more women were found dead in Colorado with similar contusions to their head, possibly, possibly a result of being hit with a crowbar. Ted's first arrest. In August 1975, police attempted to stop Bundy for driving for a driving violation. 
He aroused suspicion when he tried to get away by turning his lights off and speeding through the stop signs. When he was finally stopped, his VW was searched and police found handcuffs, an ice pick crowbar, pantyhose with eye holes, out, eye holes cut out along with other questionable items. They also saw that the front seat of the passenger side of his car was missing. Police arrested Tim Bundy on suspicion of burglary. Bundy is charged with kidnapping. Police compared the things found in, the Bund in Bundy's car to those DeRunch described seeing in her attacker's car. The handcuffs that had been placed around one of her wrists were, were the same make as those Bundy's in, in Bundy's possession. Once DeRunch picked up Bundy out of a lineup, the police felt they had enough evidence to charge him with attempting kidnapping. The authorities felt confident that it had pers had the person responsible for the tri-state murder spree that had gone on for more than a year. Bundy is charged with the murder of Campbell. Bundy went on trial, went to trial for the attempted kidnapping to Roch in February 1976. After waiving his right to jury trial, he was found guilty and sentenced to 15 years in prison. During this time, police were investigating links to Bundy and the Colorado murders. According to his credit card statements, he was in the area where several women vanished in early 1975. In October 76, Bundy was charged for the murder of Karen Campbell. Bundy escapes. Bundy was extradited from Utah prison to Colorado for the trial. Serving as his own as his own lawyer allowed him to appear in court without leg arm irons, plus gave him the opportunity to move freely from the courtroom to the law library inside the courthouse. In an interview, while in the role as his own attorney, Bundy said, More than ever, I am convinced of my own innocence. In June 1977, during a pre-trial hearing, he escaped by jumping out of a law library window. He was captured a week later. The second escape. On December 30th, Bundy escaped from the prison and made his way to Tallahassee, Florida, where he rented an apartment near Florida State University under the name of Chris Hagen. College life was something Bundy was familiar with and one he enjoyed. He managed to buy food and pay his way at a local college bar and stolen credit cards. When he went bored, he would duck into lecture halls and listen to the speakers. It was just a matter of time before Monster Inside Bundy would resurface. The Sorority House Murders On Saturday, January 14th, Bundy broke into Florida State University's Chi Omega Sorority House and bludgeoned and strangled to death two women, raping one of them and brutally biting her on her buttocks and one nipple. He beat two others and over the head with a log. They survived, within, which investigators attribute to fellow roommate Nita Neary, who came home and interrupted Bundy before he was able to kill the two other victims. An eyewitness. Nita Neary came home around 3am and noticed the front door to the house was ajar. As she entered, she heard hurried footsteps above going towards the stairway. She hid in a doorway and watched as the man wearing a blue cap carrying a log left the house. Upstairs, she found her roommates. Two were dead, two others severely wounded. That same night, another woman was attacked and the police found a mask on the floor identical to the one found later in Bundy's car. Bundy's arrested again. On February 9th, 1978, Bundy killed again. This time it was 12-year-old Kimberly Leach, who he kidnapped then mutilated. Within a week of, her, of, her, of the disappearance of Kimberly, Bundy was arrested and in Pensacola for driving a stolen vehicle. Investigators had had eyewitnesses who identified Bundy at the dorm at a Kimberley's at Kimberley's high school. They also had physical evidence that they linked him to three murders. 
including the mould of the bite marks found on the flesh of the sorority house victim. The plea bargain. Bundy, still thinking he could beat a guilty verdict, turned down a plea bargain whereby he would plead guilty to killing the two sorority women and Kimberly Lefouch in exchange for, for three 25-year sentences. The End of Ted Bundy Bundy went on trial in, in Florida on June 25, 1979 for the murders of the sorority, sorority women. A trial was televised and Bundy played up to the media when, on occasion, he acted his own attorney. He was found guilty on both murder charges and given two death sentences by means of electric chair. On January 7, 1980, Bundy went on trial for killing Kimberly Leach. This time he allowed his attorney to represent him. They decided on an insanity plea the only defence possible with the amount of evidence the state had against him. Bundy's behaviour was much different during this trial than the previous one. He displayed fits of anger, slouched in his chair, and his colligate look was sometimes replaced with a haunting glare. Bundy was found guilty and received a third death sentence. During the sentence phase, Bundy surprised everyone by calling Carol Boone as a character witness and marrying, and marrying her with her while she was on the witness stand. Boone was convinced of Bundy's innocence. She later gave birth to Bundy's child, a girl, little girl who Bundy adored. In time, Boone divorced Bundy after realizing he was guilty of the horrific times. After endless appeals, Bundy's last day of execution was on January 17, 1989. Prior to beating, being put to death, Bundy gave the details of more than 50 women he had murdered to, to Washington State Attorney General's Chief Investigator, Dr. Bob Keppel. He also confessed to keeping the heads of some of his victims at his house, plus to engaging in necrophilia with some of his victims. In his final interview, he blamed his exposure to pornography at an impressionable age and as being the stimulant behind his murderous obsessions. Many directly involved with Bundy believed he murdered at least 100 women. The electrocution of Ted Bundy was scheduled amid a carnival-like atmosphere outside the prison on January 24, 1989. Theodore Bundy died at around 7.13am as the crowds outside cheered his death. Right, that was a little bit of um backstory on who Ted Bundy was. I'm going to take a break, and when I come back, I will be talking about Bundy, A Legacy of Evil, a Michael Pfeiffer film. I'll be right back. I've never seen such a frenzied, morbid celebration of hatred for one individual. Ken Bundy. See how she rests her hand upon her cheek. Oh, that I wore a glove upon that hand, that I might touch that cheek. Want a very nice class? Yeah, I like that. Theodore Robert Bundy would like to know if you would be my wife. Just just, just be gentle. You are the perfect girl for me. I'm sorry. You had a crappy childhood. There's only so much you can take of your soul. I can change anything you want. I can be different. Destiny! I'm gonna stay right here with you. Alright? That's what we're all looking for here. 
right? You know, some clarity. Sometimes it just takes a stranger to call out of the blue and, uh, and remind you of that. You have a gift, Ted. You have this ability to connect to people. You always have the right things to say. You think? <laughs> Welcome back. Right, now, after I give you a little bit of a detailed description of who Ted Bundy was, if you didn't know who, who he was, I'm going to talk about um, the film I watched of him. There's plenty of films out there um, about Ted Bundy, but I watched um, Michael Pfeiffer's Bundy, A Legacy of Evil. And um, this is not Michael Pfeiffer's first serial killer adaption. He's also produced and directed um, Drifter, Henry Lee, Henry Lee Lucas, um, Boston Strangler, The Untold Story, Ed Gain, The Butcher of Plainfield, and Butcher Torture Kill, BTK. Um, and some of these stars Kane Hoda as various characters, including Ed Gain and Dennis L. Raider in BTK. So um, he likes to use certain characters for his films and. Kane Hoda is a good choice. Um, for Odita, I watched Ed Gain, Butcher Plainfield the other night. It wasn't particularly good. Um, Ed Gain was an oldish guy, really um, thin physique, um, but portrayed by Kane Hoda, as you know, is built like a brick shithouse, basically. I just didn't understand why Michael Pfeiffer wanted Kane Hoda to portray Ed Gain when Ed Gain's a small denty, skinny guy. As you know, which you all know who Kane Oda is. Fucking big, butched up beef, beefcake, fuck's sake. So that's sort of um, not a good um, film, to be honest. It was okay. I didn't really care much about it. And and another thing, character starred in this film was Jen Nicholson, who played Bundy's um, love interest, Stephanie. And she was also in the Boston Strangler, um, the untold story. Um, she's a very beautiful actress, easy on the eye, and a truly talented individual. And also, um, Corin Nemec, who will play Bundy in, obviously, what I'm going to talk about now, also star starred in the Boston Strangler Untold Story. I've not seen this film. Now I have to see it, with these two characters back in there, so it like it seems Michael Pfeiffer really wants to start um, a little serial killer fetish, you know, what kind of fetish? What about fetish, Aaron? You know, how do I put it? Start a long line of serial killer films involving characters that you can work with, like Corin Nemec, um, Kane Hoder, and Jen Nicholson, and I think it's really working. I've only seen Ed Gain and. 
um, but Legacy of Evil. Egg Gainer was okay. I didn't agree with the um, Kane Hoda playing um, Gain. I didn't agree with that. But Coronemic's oh, portrayal as Bundy. Right, right. I need to talk to you about this one. This guy was brilliant. As you know, Ted Bundy is played by Corin Emmerich, who in my opinion plays the charmer and sadistic killer who is Bundy brilliantly. His performance really, really, really made this film. Um, he was a believable guy that could really harm you by charm, sorry, charm you by day, and really connect with you, and really make you like like him. But at night, he would be turned into the sadistic fucking nutcase who would torture kill and rape you obviously not in that order probably actually saying that he probably would um, and to play such a mixed up individual must have taken a lot of research for Nemec um, in my opinion you got it down to near excellence each scene he was in it was really believable it hooked me on the edge of my seat um, it was this is a slow burn film. You see, you don't see many deaths in it, um, but with when Nemec's on the screen, you can't help be hooked. He is a truly, truly gifted actor. He needs to do more stuff. He needs to be recognised. Um, and in my opinion, the story of legacy of story uh, story of a legacy of evil. It's nigh on accurate to what re records have down and what police acquired from Bundy before his execution. Um, some of it was not put in there, like when he escaped from the library out the window, that was not put in there, but this other escape was in there. But the library escape was in another Ted Bundy film. I think it was called Ted Bundy. Um, but that escape was in there. So if you want to see how he'd done that escape, watch the other Ted Bundy film. There's plenty out there. Um, but this film revolved around when he escaped from prison. Um, like I said, there are many Bundy films out there, and all of them I've loved. Each one always portrays near-accurate analysis on what actually happened and, and how Bundy acted. Um, how he was, like I said, he was a charmer, a charmer during a day. He could, he really was. He had a gift. He had a real gift to connect people. Um, he could, you could, if uh, I don't know, I could. He's probably a guy. If I'd met him years ago. A guy you could really have a substantial conversation with, but all along, something inside him was really winding up big time. And by nights and evenings, should I say, he used to go and butcher women and rape them and do whatever he wanted with them. Another thing, the flow of the film was passed really well. It kept you on your seats, like I said, and and you'd like to it kept you on the seat and you wanted to know how what would come next, how Ted would act and what would he do next. In my opinion, it didn't have a single dull moment. And that was due to the fact that Corin's acting, like I said, was brilliant and felt true. And in mo and like in most biopic films these days, the unknown actor tends to really give a reliable performance. Um if you if you're a fan of like true movies and you like watching like I know on Sky over here in the UK we have a true movie station where we have a lot of true movies about um <laughs> basically true stories. And you, and the actor the unknown actor tends to really give a reliable performance. 
and that's why I love true stories and sometimes the big time overpaid blockbuster actors they don't really oh how to put it unlike the big paid blockbuster actors the unknown actors really give their all because it could well be their last the last film for the last project for a while as you know the unknown actors really they're not well paid and not as you know well known so that's why they put all their effort into what they do because they f they full well know that this could be their last film for five ten years where the ho mainstream Hollywood actors like I say don't really care that they know they're going to be well paid they could retire probably after one film I fucking would and that's why um, and they, they know full well they're going to be given another well paid job in weeks to come it's like if you watch any true story the acting tends to be heartful and true it's believable I'm not saying that the likes of De Niro and Depp don't put their all into it and they're not believable I'm just saying the smaller actor tends to be a surprise revelation just like Corin in, Corin in this film it is, he really does portray Bundy really well they seem to be Corin acted Bundy acted out Bundy's slayings I was totally transfixed on how Pfeiffer directed these scenes it was relaxing and yet somewhat disturbing maybe just like how Bundy was in real life like it was relaxed person to be around with during the day as you if you renew him but on the upside he was disturbed and twisted and the the scenes where he was committing the crimes in a sorority house it was like really it was all done in slow motion it was like Bundy stood there with a base about really you see the aggravation in his eyes the pain in his eyes Bundy had and it was all done in slow motion with this really soft gentle music I was when I was watching I was really mesmerized it just felt relaxing. You knew he was committing some heinous crime, really heinous, sick crime. But you cannot be helped but by transfixed on how Pfeiffer portrayed that. It felt so relaxed. I felt relaxed as he was murdering and slaying these young girls. Sounds a bit twisted, but maybe that's how Bundy felt when he was doing it. I don't know. We will never know, as he's dead now. Um, what else should I talk about? Just got some notes written down here. Um, in a nutshell, let's just round this little bit off. Overall, Bundy, A Legacy of Evil, is a decent portrayal of Theodore Bundy. And basically, I highly recommend it to any true story or horror fan. Um, this film has all it has um, detail accuracy of what Bundy and who Bundy was and what he had done. It may have not had many of the death scenes, but it didn't need it. The acting from Corin of Bundy was really, really well done. He definitely put us all into this, and there wasn't that many death uh, murder scenes. They didn't, they didn't show him that many scenes, but when they did, it was portrayed really well. It was visually gripping. It made you feel for the character. I felt, in a way, I felt sorry for Bundy. I've always felt sorry for Bundy. You may think I'm a sicko for this, but I just... I, when I was watching the scenes for him when he was on death row, I just felt really sorry for him. It's a waste of life. He could have done so, so much. Um, in a nutshell, Bundy was a highly intelligent guy, as you all know. He could have, like I said, he could have done anything with his life. He could have become a successful lawyer. He had a gift to really connect to people and change them for the better. Why did he flip and become slowly, become sh begin showing psychotic tendencies?
why would a guy with the world at his feet throw it all away? In my opinion, if you really want to find out, check out this brilliant film, or check out one of any of the other brilliant films that's out there, portrayed by Bundy. You can go on the internet, there's probably a load of crime libraries out there, you can check out True Crime Library, I think truecrimelibrary.com, you could check out if you really want to know more about this guy. Or check out the many documentaries on YouTube. I've been watching lately on YouTube, there's been shitloads of documentaries. On them, um, serial killers, I've watched some about Zodiac, Jeffrey Dahmer, Ed Gain, um, Richard Ramirez. There's so many out there. So if you really want to know who this guy was, or find out who he is, do the research like I have. You won't be disappointed. This guy is truly remarkable. And Bundy has always interested me, and forever will. Um, I'm going to take a little break. Um, I'm going to play you a rare interview footage with Ted Bundy. So stay tuned for that, it's coming up in a couple of seconds. Then after that I'll be discussing and talking about one of my favourite all-time serial killers, the unknown Zodiac. You are not guilty. I'm not guilty. <laughs> does, that, does that include the time I stole a comic book when I was five years old? <laughs> I'm not guilty of the charges which have been filed against me. And the allegations? And the allegations? And the rumors? And the <laughs> I don't know all of what you're speaking about, Lucky. It's too broad and I can't get into it in any detail. Uh, but I'm satisfied with, with my blanket statement that I'm innocent. Uh, no man is truly innocent. Uh, I mean, we all have transgressed in some way in our lives. And as I say, I, I've been uh, impolite and uh, there are things I regret having done in my life. Uh, but nothing like the, the things I think that you're referring to. I think I stand about as much chance of dying in front of a firing squad or in a gas chamber as you do being killed on a plane flight home. Let's hope you don't. <laughs> But, so you don't lie awake at night thinking about it? Not a moment. Honest to God, not a moment. I've been told that, uh, you know, the parents of these of these girls are, are, are fairly decent people. I don't know. And I really feel for them because apparently they've suffered some uh, an incredible tragedy in their lives. The loss of a loved one is is probably, probably the most extreme kind of loss you can suffer in, in this life. And I say, I, I feel as much for them as anybody can. You think about getting out of here? Well, well, uh, legally. Dear Editor, this is the murderer of the two teenagers last Christmas at Lake Herman and the girl on the 4th of July. I want you to print this cipher on the front page of your paper. He wants his code in the afternoon edition. Ray Smith, don't you have a cartoon to finish? The Zodiac Killer has come to San Francisco. Another letter. School children make nice targets. He gave himself a name. Greek, Morse code, astrological signs. This guy's used them all. I like killing people because man is the most dangerous animal of all. How does one do that? 
I like puzzles. I do them a lot. Got any hard suspects? About uh, 90 an hour. Come up to around 500. You got four crime scenes. Not a single usable print. You can't think of this case in normal police terms. He's breaking the pattern. Lana said you were a cartoonist. Oh, yeah. <laughs> what are you doing at the gun range? I just want to help. What are you, some kind of boy scout? Eagle scout, actually. First class. Oh, I've been thinking. Oh, God, say it was there's no evidence, Robert. What do you mean there's no evidence? You have him seen with the ciphers, the military blueprints, the bloody knife. All circumstantial. Why do you need to do this? Because nobody else will. Dave, you made a mistake! Get away from the window. Paul, oh, are you okay? No. Why'd you do it? You put your face out there for him to see. Hello? Who is this? Zodiac was my job. It's not yours. He's still out there, Dave. Killing is his compulsion. It drives him. It's in his blood. Jeez. What? Squirrels. This is the Zodiac speaking. I have a gun. I can give you a lift to the service station. Do you always go around helping people in the night? I'm not the Zodiac. And if I was, I certainly wouldn't tell you. Are you sure there's nobody else in the house? Hi, my macabre listeners. I'm back with my second serial killer of the show, The Zodiac. And I'm just going to read to you a brief summary on The Zodiac Murders. Bear with me, people. The Zodiac story began on a darkened road near Benicia, California on the night of the 20th of December, 1968, when a motorist discovered the lifeless bodies of two teenagers at Lover's Lane Spot. Months later, a gunman attacked the second young couple in a public park miles away, and after leaving the scene, he travelled to a payphone located just blocks away from the Vallejo Police Department and dialed the number on the station. When the police dispatch answered, the caller spoke in a low, monotone voice, as if you were reading from a pre-prepared script. I want to report a murder. If you'll go down, go one mile east on Columbus Parkway, you'll find kids in a brown car. They were shot in it with a 9mm Luger. I also killed the kids last year. Goodbye. Investigators from Vallejo and Benicia realized that they were searching for the same killer and bold, and the bold sinister phone call raised fears that the gunman would strike again. A teenage boy survived the shooting but was unable to help identify any possible suspects. 26 days later, three envelopes arrived at the offices of three Bay Area newspapers. Each contained a handwritten letter and a piece of coded message. The writer provided a list of details regarding the two shootings and explained that symbols formed a code message that would re reveal his identity. The letter ended with this warning. If you do not print this cipher by the afternoon of Fry, 1st of Org 69, I will go on a kill rampage Friday night. I will cruise around all weekend killing lone people in the night, then move on to kill again, until I end up with a dozen people over the weekend. A cross-circle symbol has been drawn at the bottom of the page, the zodiac symbol. Each of the newspapers compiled, complied with the demand to publish the cipher and the news of the gunman's threats, created fears that he would strike again. Experts and, experts and amateurs scrambled to decode the cipher while investigators sorted through hundreds of tips from helpful citizens.
The ciphered message did not reveal the killer's identity, but the words did offer a chilling portrait of the author's state of mind. I like killing people because it is so much fun. I will not give you my name because you will try to slow down or stop my collecting of slaves for my, for my afterlife. When authorities expressed doubts concerning the writer's claims, another letter arrived and began with the words that would forever send chills throughout the north, throughout Northern California. Dear editor, this is the Zodiac speaking. In answer to your, in answer to your asking about the good news, good times, I have had a, have let's uh, read that again, Aaron. <coughs> Bear with me, people. The, dear editor, this is the Zodiac speaking. In answer to your asking about the good times I have had in Vallejo, I shall be very happy to supply even more material. The writer provided more details about the attacks than took issue with some factual errors in news reports about his crimes. Weeks passed, and as the manhunt continued, Zodiac moved north into Napa Valley and California wine country, where he stabbed a young couple on the banks of Lake Berryessa. A survivor told investigators that the attacker had worn black square hood with a white cross circle over his chest to prove he was responsible for the crime. The Zodiac used a black marker to draw a large cross circle on the door of Brian's car. Below his symbol, the killer listed the dates of two shootings and added the notation September 27, 69, 6.30 by 9th. At 7.40pm, the Napa County Police Department received a call placed from a telephone booth located a few blocks away. Officer David Slaught listened as the caller said in a low monotone voice, I want to report a murder. No, a double murder. They are two miles north of Park Headquarters. They were in a white Volkswagen Carmen gear. Slate asked the man to provide his location, but the voice only grew more distant as the caller replied, I'm the one who did it. Investigators from Napa met with the detectives in Vallejo and Benicia and compared notes, but were unable to develop any solid leads. The Zodiac mayor believed that the three law enforcement agents were not up to the task, and he invited San Francisco Police Department to join in the hunt. 29-year-old cab driver Paul Stein was picked up by the Zodiac on the night of, the 11th, night of October 11th, 69. Stein drove to a destination in a wealthy San Francisco neighborhood where the passenger shot him in the right temple. Fingerprints were found inside the cab on its exterior were photographed and collected. On the driver's side of the vehicle, police found fingerprints which appeared to contain traces of blood. Investigators believe that these fingerprints may have lit been left by the killer. Three young witnesses watched the crime in progress from a house directly across the street and, and, con and contacted the police. Descriptions provided by the three young witnesses produced a compositive sketch of the man seen exiting Stein's cab. Police believe that Stein was a victim of a routine robbery until the Zodiac began to send scraps of the cab driver's blood-soaked shirt to prove they were mistaken. The letter ended with another terrifying threat of violence. School children make nice targets. I think I shall wipe out a school bus some morning. Just shoot out the front tyre and pick off the kiddies as they come bouncing out. Patrol cars and aircraft followed buses to and from schools and armed officers rode on board for added protection. The Zodiac then sent another letter along with diagrams of a bomb he intended to plant along bus routes. The ongoing mystery attracted the customary crackpots, wild tips, false confessions and hoax letters. 
infamous defense attorney Melvin Belly entered the story during a televised phone conversation with a man claiming to be the Zodiac. Police traced subsequent calls to Belly's home and identified the crazed imposter as a patient in a mental hospital. As if to reclaim the publicity, the killer mailed a letter to Belly that included another blow-soaked scrap of the cab driver's shirt to prove that he was the real Zodiac. Despite Belly's public offer to help the killer, the real Zodiac never contacted the famous attorney again. During one call to Belly's home, the Zodiac imposter declared, Today's my birthday. The so-called Belly birthday call has since become the subject of controversy. More letters contained more threats, bomb diagrams and coded messages. The Zodiac also announces, announced his intention to change his way of collecting slaves for the afterlife. By staging his crimes it appeared to be routine robberies, killings of anger and a f few fake accidents. The killer included long rambling descriptions of his fantasies of torture along with selective passages from the Gilbert and Sullivan musical The Mikado. Letters soon featured a box score which credited the Zodiac with an increasing number of victims followed by the notation SFPD equals zero and the taunt. I hope you have fun trying to figure out who I killed. Given the killer's apparent freedom to do as he pleased, one particular passage was difficult to refute. The police shall never catch me because I have been too clever for them. The failure to catch the Zodiac was a constant source of embarrassment for his chosen nemesis, the San Francisco Police Department. Each new letter became a liability as a psycho the psychotic pen pal wrote, Hey, Blue Pig, doesn't it rile you, that's, rile you to have your nose rubbed in your boo-boos? And I've grown rather angry with the police f for their telling lies about me. The Zodiac also demanded that the people of Bay Area wear some nice Zodiac buttons, bearing his chosen symbol, the cross circle. When the public did not comply with his wishes, he wrote that he had punished them by shooting a man sitting in a parked car. Police reports linked the Zodiac to many other unsolved crimes, including the March 1970 abduction of a young woman who, had, who told authorities that she had accepted a ride from a mysterious stranger who resembled the Zodiac. But the man had turned menacing and threatened her life and she managed to escape by jumping from the man's car. The Zodiac letter later claimed that he was responsible for the failed abduction and subsequent letter. Reporter Paul Avery received a Halloween card from his new secret pal, the Zodiac. A Avery later learned of a possible link between the Bay Area killer and the unsolved murder of a young girl in Southern California several years earlier. Handwriting analysis indicated the Zodiac that the Zodiac had been responsible for several letters and notes mailed to the police, a local newspaper and a father of the victim. In a letter mailed to LA Times, the Zodiac wrote that he was impressed by the police work which had been that had linked him to the other case, but he claimed that there were that there will that there were still more victims yet to be found. Tired of playing with his apparently inferior pursuers, he challenged them and wrote, "If the blue meanies, blue meanies are ever going to catch me, they had best get off their fat asses and do something." Correspondence from the killer ceased, and the trail of the killer grew cold by the summer of '71. As Zodiac disappeared, someone like him began to appear on movie screens everywhere with the with the release of Clint Eastwood's action classic Dirty Harry. Shot in San Francisco, the film follows Inspector Harry Callahan, a character based on one of the inspectors assigned to the Zodiac case. Callahan tracked a Zodiac-like villain named Scorpio, who hijacks a school bus and meets a violent demise of a final, in a final shootout with Clint Eastwood.
The Hollywood version deli delivered for audience the justi justice reality refused to provide. <coughs> Bear with me, guys. Just take a sip of water. Mm -hmm. ah. Right, where was we, people? The Zodiac resurfaced as a social critic with a series of letters in spring of 74. He wrote to express his cons consternation regarding what he considered the murder glorification in deplorable. Advertisements for the film. Badlands, which depicted the bloody crime spree of young lovers Richard Starkweather and Anne Carol Fugit. Another letter demanded the termination of a columnist because he suffered from a, a serious psychological disorder. A final letter offered a review of the satanic blockbuster The Exorcist and described the film as the best satirical comedy the killer had ever seen. This letter also contained another quote from the musical Mikado. He plunged himself, himself into the below, blowy wave and echo arose from the suicide grave. The Zodiac demanded that the letter be printed in a newspaper and warned or I'll do something nasty which you would which you know I'm capable of doing. The writer did not use the name Zodiac, as if to underscore the suicide theme and suggest that he had abandoned the persona in favour of some new and perhaps improved alter ego. Once again the killer vanished. Headlines such as Cops No Closer to Zodiac Identity and occasional articles reported tenuous links to other unsolved cases kept the story alive over the years. The Zodiac crimes grew in local legend, and the ghost of the killers became modern boogeyman and serial killer pop culture phenomenon of the late 1970s. A new breed of monster, the multiple murderers had given birth to a ludicrous market for graphic and often lurid crime books. The gruesome careers of John Wayne Gacy, the son of Sam, Ted Bundy and others provided the limited supply of material for the so-called true crime genre. But many of the reading books were often more fiction than fact. Almost a decade after the first brutal shootings along Lake Herman Road, Robert Graysmith, a cartoonist employed at the San Francisco Chronicle, was at work on his own book about the Zodiac case. After conferring with a San Francisco police inspector, the celebrity pop cop in charge of the investigation, Graysmith had developed his own theories as well as a suspect. When a new Zodiac letter arrived at the Chronicle and mentioned the inspector by name, rumours spread that the publicity-conscious cop had forged the letter. The subsequent media scandal caused great embarrassment for the SF um, Police Department. Several experts deemed the, letter, the new letter a forgery, and all, although never officially named as the forger, officials reassigned the celebrity inspector to the pawn shop detail. Graysmith's book hit the stores in '86 and immediately generated a new wave of coverage that would forever change the public, public perception of the case and alter the course of the Zodiac investigation forever titled The Zodiac, which I am also currently reading at the moment, listeners. Um, the book read like a screenplay featuring the author-turned-author-amateur sleuth at the centre of the ongoing drama from the beginning, sharing secrets with investigators and hotting the trial of the killer. The cartoonist claimed that he had ciphered the codes, proved that the killer had a, had used a projector to disguise his own... Yeah projected to use disguise his own handwriting and discovered an astrological pattern to the crimes. Hmm. We'll see about that. United Press International writer Richard M. Harnett's review of the Zodiac appeared in the LA Times on February 9, 1986. Listen to this, people. And offers some of the only media criticism of the book. Harnett wrote, Good account of all the facts in Zodiac affair 
would have been a valuable contribution, but Graysmith's a newspaper cartoonist took on the role of amateur sleuth rather than historian. He neglects those parts of the his this his of the historical record that don't fit into this his scenario. The author's prime suspect named in the book as Bob Hall Star was actually a convicted child molester named Arthur Lee Allen. Reported as a possible Zodiac suspect in 71, Allen had been the subject of a brief investigation that had fallen, failed to produce any evidence linking him to the crimes. According to Graysmith, this man was a suspect in another string of killings, had confessed his guilt to the friends, terrified his family, torn to police and even described details of the crime before they occurred. Along with other convincing tales, these stories appear to prove the child molester was in fact the elusive Zodiac. But unsuspecting readers of the book could not have known that the most of the stories regarding Grace was suspect were not true, or that his theories, code solutions, and other claims were equally dubious. Despite its many factual errors and um, falsehoods, the book became a bestseller, and the media announced this, the, anointed the author as the expert on the seemingly solved case. Newspaper articles, television newspaper reports, and documentaries used the book as a definitive reference source, and often reported as it, its myths as facts while helping the to convict the child molester in a court public opinion. Fear struck again in the early 1990s when a man claiming to be the Zodiac surfaced with a series of shootings at letters in New York City. Police eventually captured the first Zodiac copycat killer in history and had he had terrorised citizens of the East Coast for more than four years. Due to the renewed interest in the original case, Zodiac was still good for ratings. In 1990, an ageing criminal contacted the Ohio Peace department in hopes of trading information for a deal to avoid a 30-year prison sentence in exchange for his total freedom. The helpful felon was willing to testify that Arthur Lee Allen had accurately predicted that the Zodiac would kill a cab driver in San Francisco. The informant had, had a history of antagonism with a suspect that dated back decades with a fist fight between the two men resulting in their arrests. Police declined to offer a deal, but Allen soon became the subject of a new investigation and information later service that the police department had purchased dozens of the copies of Graysmith's book as factual reference. The second investigation failed to produce any evidence to, ev to implicate Allen, but search research calm down Aaron, but searches of the suspects of Ohio home led to a media circus and a spotlight on the accused man. Allen professed his innocence during interviews with reporters and even appeared on a segment of a tabloid television program, A Current Affair. In spring 92, freelance writer Ryder McDowell interviewed Allen in his home while researching an article to, for the San Francisco Chronicle. McDowell, uh, McDowell described the ill and aging subject as disarmingly friendly and wrote that Allen had acknowledged that he had spent time in jail and gotten away with a lot of bad things, but he denied any involvement with the Zodiac case. Alan told McDowell, it wasn't me, and that's the truth, and if people want to believe it was me, well, that's their problem. I was cleared on every angle, including the handwriting test, plus I don't look like anything like the guy. Reporter Rita Williams reportedly asked Alan if he was the Zodiac and whether he read, was ready to confess. Alan declared, in obvious frustration, I'm not the damn Zodiac. Shortly after the media revealed his status as the prime suspect in California's most notorious unsolved murder, Alan died amid a fury of flurry of upstained rumours linking him to the crimes. News reports described Alan as the man that the, the man most investigators believed was a zodiac that could have been etched onto his tombstone.
Lingering doubts about Alan's guilt and his credibility of Grace's sensational book ensured that the case remained an ongoing media interest for many years to come. Like the like London's Jack the Ripper mystery, the Zodiac case became an irresistible lure for many amateur sleuths ready to peddle the new theories of list of suspects no writer of fiction could have con conceived. A wealthy San Francisco businessman, a former Harvard lecturer, and a case of cast of luck unlucky men were wrongfully accused, while other theories linked the Zodiac to the Unibobber, members of the murderous Manson family, um, and even Witchcar's BTK killer. So yeah, till today, the Zodiac is still unidentified. And as you hear from that long, long, meant to be a summary, yeah, um, it's still basically unsolved. As you know, like I said, the, the report said, that Graysmith, um, in his novel, has basically indicated that Arthur Leanne is the Zodiac Killer. And this also resides in David Fincher's version, based on Graysmith's book. Um, let's talk about the film. Directed by David Fincher, or, as you may know, also done Seven, Fight Club, Panic Room. This guy is one of my favourite um, directors, right up there with Spielberg. I adore his films. I love his films so much. And when I heard... David Fincher is doing a serial killer movie. My heart popped out of my mouth and fell on the floor. Because that is basically like a wet dream for me. One of my favourite directors doing a serial killer movie. Oh, oh yeah. Sorry. Control myself, Aaron. Right. Well, you just heard about basically about the whole scenario, the summary of what the Zodiac done. So basically, I'm not going to talk about it in, about the film. Let's talk about what the film looked like. As you know, the film is based on Graysmith's novel and it, Graysmith's, Graysmith's accounts of what actually happened. And it really did work well. It, if, you're an, if you didn't know what anything to do with the case whatsoever, you've never read anything about the Zodiac, it's a really thrilling film. It really hooks you. The detail it goes into with all the killings and and all the um and how the, the police portray and try to capture the Zodiac it really works well. But if you're a Zodiac buff that really looks into like you're basically an amateur sleuth that really looks into the detail of things, then obviously probably you probably see some flaws in the film. But when I first watched the film. I never really knew much about the Zodiac past at all or anything, and I just basically got hooked on it. And I, when I was watching the film, I found out that there was a book about it, and I just had to get it. So I obviously thought, obviously, all the probably some of the scenarios in Grace Smith's book are true, are, are are correct, but obviously stuff that leads from the story from from um sorry, put it this way. Obviously, some parts of the Graceless book are true, but obviously some of the accounts were probably falsified to make the story sound more interesting. I'm not saying that's true, but reports from that summary of claiming that. Right, the style of the film. This film fits the 70s film feel. The look, uh, how if you've seen the Fincher film, you know what Seven looks like. It's dirty, grungy for 
what the sort of, sort of type of film is basically a, a killer film and a fight club I would say Zodiac has the same sort of feel as Fight Club the same washed out greeny look as Fincher does in all his films that's its greeny filter he has um, the shots are so beautiful they had a shot at one point of when Zodiac was in the cab about to kill Paul Stein the the camera was following like a GTA you know the old school GTA video game have a camera shot of like that following the taxi and the way the lights from the street surround it lit to cut the taxi as it was going down the road and had the camera above like a GTA you know Grand Theft Auto 1 mode that shot was brilliant I love that shot it looks so perfect just overall, the film looked, like I said, it looked really stunning. That that green filtery look, that musty brown look that Fincher uses in the majority of all his films, washed out look. And the the facts of the film is really good. Um, obviously, as you know, people have disclaimed that Grossmith falsified some of the um, facts about, about Alan and that. But maybe some of the facts about Alan are true, but no one's been able to prove it. And this film is basically near the end of the film. It's basically Graysmith going after Alan. He's he's composited so many facts about Alan um, being linked with so many different crimes, and he just he pushes it and pushes it and pushes it so hard that he almost wrecks his marriage. Basically, his, his wife and his kids move out. His house is stacked full of papers. Oh, by the way, I forgot to talk about characters, didn't I? Who's playing who? So you get the gist. Well, Robert Graysmith in the film is played by Jake Gyllenhaal. Um, Paul Avery the, is played by Robert Downey Jr. And I love Robert Downey Jr. Anything he's in, I have to watch. He's an actor you just you, just, you love to watch. Well, I do anyway. Um, Inspector William Armstrong is played by Anthony Edwards. You may know him from ER, 90s ER. Um, Inspector David Toshi was played by Mark Ruffalo. And this is a big one. British influence here. Melvin Belly was played by Brian Cox. And Arthur Lee Allen was portrayed by John Carroll Lynch. Oh, that's the actors. Yeah, it. I can't really say much about really because you've heard the summary, the, the summary of it. All I can say, the film, compositive shots were brilliantly and beautifully, well lit and well um, directed. The acting was brilliant, so so good in my opinion. Um, I told you about the GTA shot, the green filtered, make the it had that really aged feel, like it was. Obviously, it had that six, late 60s, early 70s feel, really aged. Um, Try to think what else to say about it. The acting was really well done. Each performance, my my, my personally, my favourite performance of the film had to be da um, Paul Avery, who was played by Robert Downey Jr. He was so brilliant. Earlier on in the film, when the... Earlier in the film, he was really, really into trying to find who this the killer was and later on has he got as you know he got disclaimed about if you watch the film you know what I'm on about he got disclaimed about something and 
he went away basically and he lived in this little riverboat thing and then you could see when Graysmith went to visit him you see he was aging he had this he was sat in pubs all day basically Zodiac killed him off basically he's drinking all the time and he was sat in pubs still drinking he had this one of these you know air tanks next to him breathing into that basically it the Zod trying to discover who the Zodiac was basically killed him slowly and I think it did it destroyed most people's lives back then it definitely nearly destroyed Graysmith's um, marriage. Um, see, I'm, just, I'm getting into the actual storyline again now. I'm trying to, try to talk about the film, and then I get drawn back into all the all the, the actual facts about the Zodiac. It's see, that's what I'm like. I try to talk about the film, yet I'm so passionate about Syracuse and the facts and the history and that I tend to wander off from the film and talk straight into the facts. Sorry about this, people try and stick with the film it's really hard because the story is really really interesting and gripping if you read the book it's a fun read but if you want to go into more detail and find out the facts and the truth about it check out um shit what was that there was a website i was going to tell you to go to had it written down but obviously it... oh, there we go go to www.zodiackiller.com it's the website of all websites to go to about the Zodiac, basically. Or you can go to zodiologists.com if you want to basically learn about more detailed facts about the Zodiac case. Um, it has expert people on there you can talk to in forums you could discuss your information with. Um, see, there we go again, Aaron. Disregarding what the film's about. Well, okay, put it this way. The film is a great adaption of Robert Graysmith's book. It it looks stunning. It had the 70s grainy feel to it. The music fit well with everything that was about the film. David Fincher did a work did a really good piece of work here. Um it, it just basically looked like Seven but had that 70s serial killer look to it. The the costumes, the clothing was brilliant. It it basically looked definitely late 60s, early 70s. It, it just felt perfect. I just I can't really argue with the film that much, to be honest. I can't really describe any Fincher's work. Basically, I'm very biased when it comes to Fincher. I'm sorry, people, but I adore the guy. And I didn't find anything wrong with this film. Obviously, people say that the facts are not true. The facts, obviously, in Grace's book, is not true, but... The film is based on Grace's book, so it's not going if, to... If Fincher wrote the film, wanted to do about different facts, then they should have went on different facts, but they've decided to do it on the book, who is basically claimed as being the so-called expert on the subject, so they decided to go with that. And in the film, they do basically pin Alan as the killer. Right, I was going to say something else then. Okay. Oh, another thing I want to say about the film. The director of photography, <laughs> to get the film the way it looked, so authentic, was brilliant. The film, the music was beautiful. And it really did set the tone of the era it was set in. In my eyes, David Fincher is an author. He loves to work with um, the best in the business. 
the looks of the film are gorgeous. Um, the camera shots, every camera, every film he's done, he does a really unique camera shot. He does this, um, oh, how to describe it? Like points of view going through walls and stuff, and going up, going up through pipes, and going through walls, and trying to get to the subject a different way. Instead of like the old usual, follow the person up the stairs, follow them down the corridor. No, Finch decides, fuck this, I'm going through the walls, disregarding, disregarding the semantics of the actual place, going through the walls, through the pipes, and going to that particular area of the place where the person is in a different way. So if the usual trek and shot through the stairs or whatever, he decides, fuck this, I'm going up through the fucking floors and up through the ceiling. I love that about him. I just love that sort of rushed, wants to get the shot done look. Maybe I'm describing it right, maybe I'm describing it wrong. Right. I can't really say much about the film. That's all I want to say about the film, really, is I recommend it. If you want to go and get it, I recommend get the Blu-ray version because there's a two, there's a, there's a special edition two-disc one. And on the disc, it has interviews with the cops disclaiming some of... Gray Smith's um, theories, and uh, and believe me that the the interviews and the documentary on there is long. Believe me, it is almost as long as the film. It goes into detail about each murder scene. Um, has rare interviews with the survivor of the Lake Mer the guy from Lake Mariessa, Berryessa, I think that's it. It's well worth it. I recommend you go to go to go on Amazon, go on Play.com, go on your local I don't know, fucking Walmart, whatever it is, wherever you live. Purchase the Blu-ray version. If you haven't got a Blu-ray player, fucking purchase a Blu-ray player at the same time and get Zodiac on Blu-ray. <clears throat> oh, I wanted to, this is what I want to tell you as well. Back last year, Deborah Perez, I don't know if you heard about this, claimed that she had evidence linking her adoptive father, Guy Ward Henriksen, to the Zodiac killings, claiming she was there in a car at some of the killings. And um, her father said that Oh, it wasn't. It was a woman being. It wasn't. She heard people being woman being scared in that. And her father claimed, "Oh, she was just some, some woman crying. She's okay now." And that when she heard gunshots, he claimed it was just firecrackers. That's what she so-called claimed, anyhow. Um, but yeah, if you go to, if I give you the link to the website, it's got the video video of it there. Where you can check out. Go to www.nowpublic.com forward slash world forward slash Devon Previs proof father guy who bought Harrison Zodiac Killer blah 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 go to newpublic.com type in Deborah Perez and it'll come up there with all the information you want there 40 years after San Francisco's notorious Zodiac killings began a Los Angeles area woman has come forward saying she can solve the case as Ben Tracy tells us she claims to be the Zodiac's daughter I had no knowledge of the Zodiac Killer upon seeing the composite I recognized the individual as my father. They called him the Zodiac Killer. Forty years ago, the mystery killer terrorized the San Francisco Bay Area, possibly killing as many as 40 people. Now Deborah Perez, a 47-year-old real estate agent, thinks her adoptive and long-dead father was the killer. I researched the Zodiac Killer, and to my surprise, I found cards and letters in evidence held by the police which were written by my father or by me. 
Perez says her father took her along on some of his killings. I would hear shots and he would state that they were firecrackers. She was just seven at the time. All I wanted to do was help my dad. He kept telling me he was sick, that he had killed many, many people. He would bring back souvenirs, like glasses he took from a cab driver he killed. I have those glasses. Police say they'll investigate. Ben Tracy, CBS News, Los Angeles. And people were skeptical of what she said because earlier claims, all right, I don't even heard this one. She said she was the love child of former US, US President JFK. In my opinion, I believe she's just another obsessed fan that just wants the spotlight on her. I can't see how any of it's true, um, personally, but if she's got evidence, if she says she's got evidence linking to her adoptive father as the Zodiac, then bring it fucking forwards. Don't try and, don't come on fucking TV or whatever and say you've got evidence. Fucking go to the police station, hand it over, and fucking try and solve this fucking case. It's been going on for, what was it, 30, 40, 40 odd years now it's been going on for. Um, but if you pe people, the listeners, my macabre listeners, have any theories on who may well be the Zodiac, or have any facts um, about the Zodiac, Feel free, please feel free to email me underground dot of dot the dot macabre at googlemail.com and I will discuss this on on the next episode of um, Serial Killers. So, <clears throat> who was the Zodiac, people? Who was he? Was the Zodiac Arthur Lee Allen, as Gray Smith pursued and claimed who claimed was? <clears throat> or was he Rick Marshall? Or Bruce Davis, or even Lawrence Kane, or as Deborah Perez claimed, her f her father, Doctor Father Guy Ward Hemrickson. I'll leave that thought with you, people. I am going to take a short break, and and I'll be back to just round off the show and just have a few, just chat with you basically. I'm just going to rant off with you about different stuff that's coming up on the show. Take it easy. Be back in a mo. Now for the first time ever on national television, Alan tells a current affair, his side of the story. There are a lot of people around who, who with, with all this bad publicity, uh, are probably sure that I'm, I'm a Zodiac. People who know me, no problem. Thank God for our Constitution, because that says a person is innocent until proven guilty. And the question of his innocence has been constantly challenged. In Robert Graysmith's best-selling book, Zodiac, the suspect's brother and sister-in-law say that Allen often spoke of man as the most dangerous game. His own family at one time found him terrifying. I enjoy a good tussle, but hey, even odds. There were coincidences that, that tended to point towards me and killing just for the pleasure of it. It's just totally foreign to me. And we're at that time again, people. Me, Aaron, oh, rounding off the show. Um, just like to mention a few things. Um, if you didn't hear it or wasn't paying attention at the beginning of the show, this is the first three parts of my Serial Killer trilogy. Um, 
next part part two will be um ready to listen to for another not this not the coming Friday and Saturday coming but two weeks from now it'll be up because after every th- after every three episodes the th- the fourth week I'm having a break because like I said too at the beginning I don't want to burn out so part two of serial killers won't be up for another two weeks which gives me time to research and figure out who next two killers will be anyhow right recommendations I've got a list a couple of websites that you should che- recommend you should check out um, first one is www.zodiackiller.com anything you want to know about the Zodiac in more detail than what I discussed, check out that web page. It discusses each of the suspects in relative detail, and it's worth checking out. Another one, personally, one of my favourites I just found recently is SerialKillersInc.com, and a web page where you can go and um, you can do a banner exchange, which I've done with me. So if you want to go onto Underground of the macabre.blogspot.com go down to the bottom of my page and there's I've got banners there and Syracuse Inc is there you link that straight up and you can come up with them um, that they've got message boards they've got interviews with serial killers they've got audio clips they do cards from they got cards pictures of cards from killers they've received they've got serial killer address to contact likes of uh, Rich Ramirez and Manson who are still prison incarcerated prison right now um, they've got a Facebook page they've got YouTube um, yeah, they're, they're just a fun webpage if you want to chat, with, listen to interviews they've done with serial killers or other things, or just, just go on message boards and have a chat with other people that are interested in what you're interested in. It's worth it, and that's SerialKillersInc.com, and I really do recommend it. And again, the Dark Hours. They're grey over there, my little friends from the other side of the pond. I love leaving this guy voicemails, because... Whenever I leave, he more or less plays, because he's a fan of my gimmicks and my voicemails, and he's a really well-talented podcaster, and I would love to do a show with him in the future. And that's The Dark Hours. Find him on iTunes, or check him out on Facebook and Twitter. And Dead Derek Reviews. Oh, Derek. I was having a little bit of an argument with him last night saying I told you so about Nightmare on Elm Street. I've not seen it, but I just knew it was going to be crap because Robert England wasn't in it. <laughs> and he basically confessed it was boring and he didn't really much care for it. And I told, I said, I told you so. And we had a little bit of a heated discussion. <laughs> so yeah, check out Dead Dare Reviews. Um, it's on Facebook as well. Um, nice person to talk to. Really cool guy. Check him out. And if you really want to contact me, please feel free to contact me. Underground.of.themacabre at googlemail.com um, If you have any queries on what I've been talking about in the last three shows, email me and I will definitely read them out on the show. Or find me on undergroundandmacabre.blogspot.com where I post um, items coming up in that whatever it comes up, what has ever come up in a podcast gets posted on my blog first. So if you want to find out the the, the news first, check out my blog because it has everything before my Facebook does. And yes, leading on to Facebook, um, find me at Aaron Grant. Just type that in, and I'm on there. Plus, Underground and Macabre has a um a page on there as well. So check that out. 
join the group discussions just come and chat with me anything any feedback I love I'm just like Gray. I'm a feed, feedback whore just fucking pimp me up bitch that's what I say and I'm on Twitter Aaron UOTM I think that's right I'm not too sure I think it's Aaron underground of the macabre yeah, UOTM I don't know so yeah um, please give me some feedback um, and just if you have any if you don't like the show tell me why I don't give a shit just fucking tell me why um, if you love the show tell me why as well or if you want to um, plug okay this is another one if you want to plug your show if you're a podcaster listen to this and you want to if you've got um, ugh, a promo you want to play email me it via just mp3 email me it and I will definitely play it on my show guaranteed 100% I won't say no to anything like that or if you want me to um, do a bumper for your own show I will be glad to and record a bumper for your show. Just get in contact with me via Facebook or my blog. Or email me and I will definitely do a really fun bumper for your podcast. That's open to anyone and everyone. Because believe me, if you ask Gray slash Eric Stoner, I can come up with some witty voicemails. And I can really come up with some really unique bumper for your show. And that's open to you as well, um, Eric. If you want me to do a bumper for your show, I'll definitely do one. And, right, if you've been following me on Facebook, you would have known I have been doing a survey for Sexiest Scream Queen. Right, I'm doing, over the next month, over the next two months, I'm doing surveys. Um, I want, I'm doing surveys of different categories, and it's all going to be compiled into one big episode. It's basically going to be called. It's basically a fans, a macabre listeners show. Um, it's basically about for you guys. Basically, I'm doing surveys. You answer the surveys, and the winners of each survey get put into a big episode. Basically, you get you get to do that. You fuck. You are pushing that. You, you how the fuck do I describe this? I do. I come up with the surveys. You do the question. You answer them. You come up with the results. The results get put into one big episode. So basically, it's your episode. Basically, it's a viewers, listeners episode. Everything that over the next few months, survey-wise, the winners get put into one big episode. I may play clips from the winners, uh, review films from the winners, and it'd be compiled in one big episode. It's basically a listeners special. Basically, that's coming up within the next couple of months. And I'd just like to reveal the Screen Queen winner. Um, oh, I think this is a bit of an easy one. I think most of you know who it is. And that is Tiffany Shepis, who is the winner of the first survey. And the sexiest screen... Screen? Screamish? Uh, okay, I know. Fuck off. <laughs> sexiest Screen Queen. And I've got a film I'm going to review about her on the listener special podcast. Buck, I'm thirsty today. All I've been doing is drinking fucking water. Right. I'm going to leave you with those thoughts. I'm be, I'll be back in two weeks' time because next week I'm having a break. Plus, I've got fucking shitloads of work to do. <laughs> and more research for episode two. Or episode four, part two of Serial Killers. And I'll be back in a couple of weeks. 
please leave some feedback um contact me on facebook just come and chat with me i'm not a nasty violent guy i might i may have the vulgar language but who the fuck cares to be honest i'm a nice guy to get with ask anyone on facebook come and check me out and thanks for listening goodbye i watch it tap for blood in my veins my heart you feed on to keep you sustained a parasite that leaves me 